This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, a number of items here we want to cover. First of all, jobs report out today. And uh, they were expecting, they, meaning investors in the government and the media, they were expecting uh, a further softening of the labor market. Uh, well, they didn't, ha didn't get it. They didn't get it. Uh, actually, the number of jobs created uh, increased here in November over October. You know, in September, the number was like 262,000 jobs, which wasn't uh, uh, very uh, convincing for the Fed uh, raising its interest rates for 18 months. They expected uh, that would begin to impact the labor market. Well, it did, apparently, in October. And uh, the two, 262 dropped to 150. And they said, oh, well, this is a sign the labor market is really softening. And uh, then this other labor market indicator called the uh, JOLT, Jobs Opening Labor Turnover, uh, came in soft here earlier in the week. Well, I wouldn't say soft, but looked like, uh, you know, there were fewer job openings. You know, they look at, they, investors and so forth, look at a whole number of uh, indicators, not just the unemployment rate or jobs created or whatever. Uh, JOLT is one of them, you know. If uh, there are fewer job openings being posted, uh, then, uh, you know, that's a sign of the labor market supposedly weakening. Well, that came in, uh, you know, softening and... Uh, earlier in the week, oh, this is a sign the labor market's finally turned here. And uh, then uh, interest rates, of course, uh, um, market rates, not the Fed's rates, interest rates uh, uh, began to slowly uh, decline during, during the week. But all of a sudden now the labor market numbers move in the other direction and you got 199,000 jobs here in November created versus 150 in October. 262 in September. So now rates are going back up again. Um, the unemployment rate went down again last month to 3.7%. Well, you know my views on these numbers. Uh, I, I take them all with a grain of salt here because uh, there's a lot of problems with them. I'm not going to go over all the problems with some of these numbers. Uh, and the surveys, the employment survey here, I've done that before. Check out some prior shows if you wish. But uh, if you look at last month's numbers, uh, government up 49,000 in one month, uh, health care 93, health, health and education, not mostly health, 93,000, leisure, meaning hotels and entertainment and so forth, 40,000. Manufacturing, actually 28,000, but 30,000 of that was uh, uh, due to the uh, uh, UAW strike. So uh, really manufacturing was flat from month to month. Uh, retail down, retail, the numbers declined, 38,000. That was the big area, retail and transport warehousing down. Well, retail reflects what's going on with the consumer and uh, consumer spending here. Uh, last month, uh, which, uh, you know, should have gone up. They should have hired more people coming into 
the holiday season, more part-timers. Well, you could argue they had hired them in August and September uh, rather than uh, September in particular, uh, rather than this close to the holiday season. But anyway, uh, retail down and uh, government health care leisure up. Uh, so it's a very mixed picture. But what it really says is that the services sector, the services sector, you know, we talk about health services, you're talking about hotel and uh, entertainment and um, uh, restaurants and bars and so forth. Uh, the service government, that's the service, the services sectors is still slightly growing which is I've been arguing all along, saying the 5.5% uh, interest rates are not high enough to really dampen spending uh, in the services. They have succeeded in dampening spending in the goods sector, particularly durable goods, you know, buying you know, cars and things like that, and so uh, electronics, et cetera. So uh, we have a very mixed economy, uh, like a two-stage economy or a, a schizophrenic economy in that we have a recession in the good sector. Manufacturing has contracted since February. Contracted, I mean negative, each month going down, down. If you look at the P, PMI numbers, they have come in below 50, so they've been negative for nine months. And if you look at inflation in the good sector, that's flat or contracting. So the interest rates have had an effect on the economy, but in the good sector only. And the good sector is only 20% of GDP of the entire economy. The services sector has not budged in nine months. In other words, 5.5% uh, interest rates are not sufficient to move that, the major part of the economy. And we see that reflected in the jobs numbers. Jobs and manufacturing flat or negative, right? Warehousing, transport, moving physical goods flat or declining slightly. I mean, it's not a big contraction, but it is a contraction in the goods sector going on because of interest rates, which, which uh, you know, dovetails into my argument all along that uh, the Fed effect on the economy uh, today is much less than it was in days past, in decades past, and not that long ago, just a couple of decades. It's much less. It impacts the good sector, construction in particular, and manufacturing, but it does not impact at 5.5% interest rates. It does not impact the rest of the economy. It's Rates got to go higher if you want to do that. Or maybe you just keep them high for an extended period of time. And I mean, six, 12 months. And I think that's what the Fed is thinking. The Fed is saying, uh, well, we're going to keep rates high. In other words, they've chosen to see whether keeping them high, high meaning around five, five and a half percent, is going to be sufficient to eventually have an impact on services rather than a more aggressive approach and raising them further in the short term to see whether that has an impact on services. They've chosen to just keep them high and wait and see. Well, they may wait a long time. It may They may be wrong. The problem is if they jumped 
interest rates about five and a half percent, as I've said many times, uh, uh, they exacerbate the regional banking uh, situation and problem. And uh, certain sectors of the economy, uh, like uh, commercial real estate, particularly office buildings and malls and so forth, which are heavily overladen with debt. And uh, next year in 2024, by 2025, uh, that sector, uh, the office sector, I think, well, maybe, maybe the whole sector, I'm not sure, but the number is uh, they have to roll over and refinance one and a half trillion dollars of debt. You see, a lot of that debt is what we call junk debt. High, it's high interest rates borrowing. They're what we call highly leveraged. Uh, that's usually a case of uh, companies that, uh, uh, you know, haven't been performing very well. Uh, if they don't perform well and they get bank loans or what or sell bonds, whatever, uh, they got to give uh, buyers of uh, of their credit, their bonds, their commercial paper, or banks that loan them money. Uh, they have to pay a higher interest rate to get that money to keep going. That's a poorly functioning economy. I mean, a company. Well, there's a lot of that in commercial real estate, a lot of that. And in some sectors of, of businesses, you know, junk bond loans, what they call high high yield loans, they're paying, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12%. Okay, so next year, they have to, those, those loans are coming due, they have to roll them over. In other words, refinance them. Well, whoever's refinancing them may look at them and say, eh, I don't know, you know, I think we're not going to do it this time. And if we're in a recession, there's going to be a lot of that double thinking saying, oh, I don't think we're going to loan these guys. They're not in very good shape. And then they go under, you see. And then their assets collapse and it spreads fear and contagion to similar companies. And their assets collapse, deflation, financial asset price deflation occurs, which just exacerbates their situation. So regional banks get stuck with the bankrupt companies and then they're in trouble. Well, they're already in trouble. Regional banks are being propped up by the Fed and the FDIC to the tune of a trillion dollars to fill their increasing black hole. Well, they don't need more failures <laughs> by, the, on, by high yield bond, junk bond companies and, and office buildings and and uh, malls and so forth, they're already in trouble. The point is, uh, even keeping interest rates high, not raising them further, but keeping them high for longer, uh, puts more pressure on this situation. Certainly, if they raised rates, they, the Fed raised rates, it would quickly put pressure. But by just keeping them high, uh, and maybe we'll get lucky, you know, we'll tiptoe uh, through this thing. Uh, you may have the same situation a little later, not earlier, if they raised rates. Okay, so uh, that's the problem. That's the financial problem, financial system side of this uh, real side of the economy problem uh, of uh, continued uh, uh, services growth uh, and services economy not really responding to the Fed's interest rates. And that's what we see in these job numbers, right? We see services still adding uh, workers, 
I would argue that these are mostly part-time workers, though. You see, uh, if you look at uh, the population survey uh, out today, current population survey. See, there's there's two surveys in these job numbers. One is the establishment survey, and one is the population survey. Uh, I've said many times, but just to uh, recap very briefly, the establishment survey is uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of larger corporations, companies reporting uh, data on their employment to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Labor Department, every month, you know, three, four hundred thousand. Uh, that's the number where you get uh, this hundred ninety nine thousand jobs created from the medium to large companies, mostly. The smaller companies aren't in that CES. They're not reporting their job situation. So, you know, when they say, oh, jobs, 199,000, uh, you know, that's the, the higher, mid to higher end of the economy and companies. And that's not really a survey. That, that's kind of like a partial census. And the problem with that is that the number of com bigger companies reporting is going down. Fewer and fewer are reporting. It used to be about four, 450,000, I, I think it's down to about 300,000 reporting. Well, that you know undermines the uh, uh, reliability of that statistic <clears throat> to some extent. Okay, so uh, 199,000, the establishment survey, the population survey, current population survey, or CPS survey, is a survey where the Labor Department itself uh, actually surveys, goes out, and uh, talks to smaller businesses and asks them, you know, what's your employment situation look like? Now, the problem is these two surveys come up with different results, you know, but the one that gets reported is the one that's more stable and higher. That's the establishment survey. That's the one that you see in the media, in the press, right? They, they, they never talk about the population survey very much, except for the unemployment rate. You see, the unemployment rate comes from the population survey. It doesn't come from the establishment survey. The total number of jobs created comes from the establishment survey. <clears throat> so if you look at the population survey, uh, you get a different picture. November, again, November, the establishment survey, 199,000 jobs, up from 150 in October. Okay, reversed. They expected it to come down further, but it didn't. Uh, that's why everyone's betting today, oh, rates are going to stay high. Uh, okay, what about the population survey? Well, the analog statistic in a population survey is the number of employed, employed, the new number employed that month. If you look at the employment level in the population survey, uh, that was only up 161,000. Wait a minute, job creation, the establishment survey, 199, employment level, population survey, 161. Which one's right? Well, pick your poison. The thing about the population survey, 161,000 total employed, right? increase total employed, that hasn't changed since July. It's been 161,000 since July. Now, the vast majority of that, over 100,000 probably, are 
people entering the labor force that month for the first time. So you got to subtract that new entrance to the labor force from the 161 apparent job increases. So you only get like 60,000 actual additional jobs by people already employed, not new entrants. Okay, so how do you get uh, uh, the labor, uh, the unemployment rate falling? Well, that's because 350,000 people last month dropped out of the labor force. They left. 350,000. Well, you know, it has to do with numerators, denominators, whatever to you know, calculate the unemployment rate. But when you have uh, the total number dropping out, uh, that alone will increase your, well, will lower your unemployment rate. There's fewer people that you're measuring the total unemployed against. So, uh, your unemployment rate goes down. It's not because they actually created more jobs. The point is that the CPS survey kind of suggests that the job creation is not as robust as the establishment survey says. 161,000 every month, you know. And what you got is a 350,000 dropout. And if you look in a population survey, part-time workers increased by 300,000. Well, there's your job growth, 300,000. Part-timers, they're part-timers, as I've been saying all along. And if you look at the, what's called the U-6 unemployment rate, you see the unemployment rate that you get, 3.7% uh, is just for full-time workers only. And we got over 50 million people in 160 uh, million labor force, roughly numbers, uh, that are part-time temp. Well, that 3.7 does not pick up part-time temp. 3.7% unemployment rate, that's full-time employment. It's called the U-3, that's full-time employment, full-time workers. Full-time workers, 3.7%. But when you add, you know, those who dropped out of the labor force, those who are part-time, involuntary part-time, those who are uh, what they call missing labor force, they can't figure out, or discouraged workers, you know. Well, that number is 7% unemployment, not 3.7, which suggests, you know, almost half of the unemployment rate are part-time temp, uh, not full-time workers. Almost half. It's seven percent, and that's unchanged since August. And compared to November last year, it's actually up from six point seven percent in November twenty twenty two. The true unemployment rate, even though there are problems with that, uh, it's better reflection of the total unemployment unemployed in this country. Uh, has risen from 6.7 to 7.0, and it's been sort of flat since the summer. So what you got, if you look at the population survey, is the economy is kind of stuck. It's stuck in terms of jobs, right? You see some movement in terms of softening uh, in some sectors, right? Some sectors of the full-time employment, in other words, uh, retail and transport and so forth. You see some 
some softening there, but not in services when you're talking about uh, full-time workers. But when you look at the whole picture of part-time workers, um, it's really flat. It hasn't changed very much, except more people are dropping out of the labor force and more part-timers are being hired. It's a mixed picture, see? which kind of says, oh, the Fed's uh, jacking up interest rates to 5.5% so fast, hasn't had that much effect on the economy. And the Fed is hoping that it will slowly deflate the air out of the real economy, slowly over time. Because when things happen fast is when you have trouble, you see. Uh, they just want it to go slowly. Uh, we had trouble when the regional banks started imploding in March of last year, right? Yeah, too, too fast. Too fast means contagion, you see. Uh, so uh, the Fed slowed it down, threw money at it, slowed it down, and now it's trying to um, pair out, that's P-A-R-E, pair, <laughs> pair out the weak sisters in the regional banking system, right? Getting them to sell their best assets, merging the, 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 the worst off banks, right? Throwing money at the banks that need it, uh, getting other banks, you know, like Chase uh, to buy a, uh, some of the, the weak sisters, right? But the Fed is worried because, as I said, you know, regional banks heavily, heavily leveraged the loans out to uh, commercial real estate, heavily regional commercial real estate, uh, really exposed to that sector, which has to then uh, roll over one and a half trillion of debt next year. Has to roll it over. In other words, refinance it. And these weakened regional banks are not in shape to do that. This is a big question mark. And if the Fed raised rates too fast, uh, it may just, you know, overturn that apple cart, you know, exacerbate the problem there. And as I said at the beginning, uh, if even uh, keeping rates high for a long time may have the same effect over a longer period of time. Okay, so that's the jobs number. That's the jobs number. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the other topic I want to talk about is uh, the election 2024. We know a big issue in the election is going to be corruption, right? Corruption. Uh, both sides, both wings of the corporate party of America, sometimes called the uniparty, uh, Republicans, uh, Democrats, you know, are trying to make uh, corruption an issue. Uh, we've known for quite some time they're trying to pin it on Trump, right? Uh, what's what's really moving forward uh, on Trump is uh, uh, what's coming out of New York, uh, New York City, and the attorney generals, they're trying to uh, uh, pin um, uh, tax evasion and tax uh, issues on Trump. Uh, a real paper trail, you know, it's easier to try to do that than it is to say, oh, his call to uh, uh, the Georgia Secretary of State during the election was an attempt to uh, uh, have the Secretary of State to manufacture some numbers uh, of voters in, in his behalf uh, to turn over uh, that state to him in the 2020 election, right? Uh, the, the infamous call where uh, uh, Trump calls him and he says, I just need you to find 10,000 votes, right? 
Uh, does that mean make them up or does that mean uh, do another audit? I, you know, that's going to be the debate. That's going to be a harder, harder sell uh, to um, prove that Trump uh, tried to um, illegally manipulate the, the vote. Okay, uh, but not so hard is going to be not as hard is going to be the uh, attempt to out of New York to try to prove that uh, uh, Trump was tax evading. Well, of course, he's a tax evader. You know, all these guys, particularly in in construction and real estate, are tax evaders, you know. Uh, OK, so they're trying to pin it on him. OK, so corruption is, is, is one of the themes here in the election. And in this case, uh, the Democrats going after Trump. Uh, but now the Republicans are going after Biden, as we know. Uh, all the talk uh, going on about uh, uh, Biden's son, Hunter, uh, having these connections in uh, in the Ukraine and China, in which uh, he's getting paid by the Ukrainians and allegedly the Chinese here, and he's kicking back some of it to his dad, Biden, Joe Biden, right? Uh, there are allegedly some f phone calls where uh, uh, evidence where uh, it's agreed that uh, Hunter can go and and influence pedal on his name and uh, governments uh, who want U.S. support uh, or who are negotiating with the U.S. will give uh, Hunter Biden big bucks and uh, knowing that uh, it's getting really back to uh, Joe Biden. Okay. Uh, you know, the blatant case here is uh, Hunter Biden on the board uh, gets put on this board of this company, this energy company in uh, in Ukraine called Burisma. Well, what the hell does he know about energy in Ukraine? Well, he's on the board, you know, and he's getting $50,000. And the phone call uh, evidence says he's kicking back uh, to his dad. And there's, there's a kind of a paper trail. Now the House uh, Republican Committee has discovered this paper trail. Uh of which uh, Biden is sending checks to his dad, okay? Well, his dad is saying, uh, oh, these are just, uh, you know, repaying of loans to him. This is not uh, a thread going back to uh, uh, Ukraine and Zelensky, right? Uh, given, uh, or Ukraine. Well, look, you know, uh, that's going on in the Ukraine, uh, not just in the case of Hunter Biden, uh, as I've said before, uh, when the coup occurred in 2014, Victoria Newland, the number one or two neocon, right, uh, in the U.S. State Department, uh, and uh, uh, number one person um, maneuvering in 2013-14 to uh, get uh, the neo-fascist thugs, street thugs, uh, to pull off this this big. Uh, uh, violent uh, insurrection in Kiev, right, at the time, in which uh, she bragged, uh, oh, we, we, the U.S., spent $5 billion to finance this coup. Yeah, she said that. I've said this before, but, you know, it really needs repeating. <laughs> Five, she bragged about it publicly. Well, she becomes the czar of the economy after, in, in Ukraine. After the, you know, the turnover, after the insurrection and the coup, uh, 
the Nazi-infested parliament over there in Kiev uh, appoints her the economic czar over the whole economy. Well, what was that? That was really about, okay, uh, Victoria, you, you engineer uh, the influx of American capitalists and capital here into our country. You know, bring these American companies over here. And that's what happened. There's a flood of American companies after 2014 uh, merging and buying uh, uh, Ukrainian companies, buying them up, merging and so forth, all these maneuvers uh, sitting on the boards, capital coming into these companies. You know, Ukrainian capitalists loved it, right? American capitalists loved it too, particularly finance capitalists, because, you know, they got their claws into some good companies. Uh, and of course, when that happens, uh, uh, the American company uh, um, companies uh, want people on the board of these Ukrainian companies to watch their investment. And uh, a whole flood, not just Hunter Biden, a whole flood of uh, lawyers and representatives and family members of the American economic elite you know, trekked into Ukraine. Not just Hunter Biden, he's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, and I've seen some references that uh, uh, other, other family members of notable American politicians uh, went, you know, into Ukraine and sat on boards and so forth. You know, so someday all that will be overturned. We'll see which members of the elite got their fingers into that. Um, the point is American companies are deeply embedded in Ukraine, deeply. And one of the reasons why the U.S. doesn't want to get out. Evidence of that, as I've said before, is I've looked at the chambers of commerce of the major cities and even mid-level cities in Ukraine, and they're full of American companies. They dominate the chambers of commerce. Well, if these companies have gone into Ukraine, uh, they got people on the boards of these companies, you know, and Hunter Biden on Burisma is only a tip of the iceberg. That's all. Yeah. And they're kicking back money. You can bet your boots they're kicking back money. So, you know, there's like a smoking gun there, you know, Hunter Biden and Burisma and so forth. But the point I want to make further is that uh, this is just the way the U.S. elites work. Right? This is just just part of the corruption. You see, in the banana republics, uh, they steal, uh, you know, these politicians uh, steal while in office. In the U.S., the corruption, the stealing is legal. It's legal. And it's usually after they leave office, particularly high-level politicians, presidents, and so forth, right? I've talked about it uh, before, you know, how do presidents become millionaires, multimillionaires after they leave office? How does this happen? It's all quite legal, right? I think I mentioned last time that, uh, uh, you know, one of the blatant, uh, most blatant examples of this is uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, when Ronald Reagan left office, his capitalist buddies arranged a 10-minute speech by him because he couldn't, you know, he was getting demanded. <laughs> they covered it up better than uh, Joe Biden has. Uh, by the time he left office, you know, he had Alzheimer's. Uh, but he goes to uh, Tokyo and gives a speech. Reagan goes to Tokyo, arranged by corporate America, goes to Tokyo, gives a 10-minute speech, and he's paid $6 million. 
Well, this is how they pay off their buddies, you see, who do a good job for them while in office. You're not supposed to put your fingers in the till while you're in office in America, but when you leave, you get rewarded nicely in a whole number of ways. As I've talked about before, you know, uh, a favorite way is uh, speeches. You know, you go and you give one of these Ronald Reagan type speeches and you get two, three hundred thousand dollars. Clinton, Bill Clinton, right? Uh, And Hillary typically get two hundred fifty thousand dollars a speech. Not just during the run up to the election in like in 216, but uh, uh, in general, once they leave office. Right, uh, speeches to trade groups and business conferences and so forth. Uh, they get ghost-written book sales. You know, all these people put out these politicians, presidents, and so forth. Even their wives, in the case of Michelle Obama, they put out books. And Hillary, they put out books, and they're given big advances, multi-million-dollar advances, whether the books sell or not. And they usually don't sell that much. And as I said last week, those that don't get sold, the publishers send them to a big furnace in L.A. and they just burn them up, right? Uh, Seats on boards, corporate boards, consulting, $50,000 a year to go sit on this, uh, you know, one or two days to sit on a board meeting, corporate board meeting, $50,000 supposedly for expenses, right? Uh, Their foundations are a way of uh, generating income. A lot of contributions to foundations because if you contribute to a foundation, it's a a tax write-off. So they get a lot of rich people who uh, like the work they did for them during the time in office, uh, put money into the foundation, and um, the foundation gives them an expense account, a nice, juicy expense account, actually a seller's, uh, you know, salary, right? Uh, Another way is loans. They get these loans. This is what CEOs do. Their their, uh, companies give them interest-free loans for uh, to buy a big house or, uh, you know, to buy another house, two or three houses or whatever. A big interest fee, interest fee uh, loan uh, is arranged for them. And then uh, after, uh, you know, 10 years or whatever, when things quiet down, uh, you know, typically uh, businesses uh, write off loans, non-performing loans after a period of time. Well, they just write off that loan. So it was a free thing, right? Insider trading tips. Oh, Wow. This is a big one. You know, they get to know IPOs coming out. And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi refused to uh, pass the legislation. She wouldn't even bring it to a vote on the floor uh, about insider trading, Congress people doing insider trading. Well, they're all in the big shots in government are involved with insider trading, right? And then their unspent campaign funds and legal defense funds, they get to keep those too. So these are the means by which corruption occurs. After they leave office, mostly. Well, let's look at some of the consequences, the results of this. Uh, And this is true for not just actual presidents, but uh, this is true for those who run for office, too. Near near presidents, you might call them, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's look at the Clintons, right? Their net worth today is probably $150 million or more. You know, the latest... uh, uh, tax return uh, data uh, that they shared, I think it was like f- three or four years ago, um, 
was uh, 120 million. Well, it's higher today, I'm sure. 120 million. They were well. What were they worth when they went into office? Well, Bill Clinton wasn't wasn't worth anything hardly. You know, he had a a little little bit of a salary. Uh, Hillary had a little bit of more of a salary than he did because he was a corporate lawyer, right? Uh, but since they Bill Clinton left left office, they've uh, and this is from their tax returns, by the way. Um, they've made $300 million from speeches, books, and consulting. $300 million to Clinton's, right? In these various measures and ways that I, that I just indicated, $300 million, right? Uh, Bill, I think they were worth 416000 in the year 2000, right? And now they're worth $120, million. Well, they... You could argue, well, there's there's smart professionals and capitalists and so forth. Yeah, but these speeches, who are these speeches for? Who buys their books? Who, who gives them consulting? Who puts them on their corporate boards? They're not so smart. They're just connected. And the connection is, thank you for the good job you did for us. Thank you, Bill, for deregulating uh, the banks here, you know, uh, and the, the shadow banks. And uh, thank you for... Uh, uh, the free trade uh, uh, deals, and uh, you know, thank you for uh, uh, the wars uh, that uh, you instigated there, uh, you know, in the Balkans and uh, Somalia and other places like that. Yeah, thank you for that. We we did quite well on that. Uh, even Al Gore, Al Gore, he's worth even more than Clinton's. He's worth three hundred million dollars, right? Yeah, he had uh, barely a million. When he left office in 2000, well, where did the, the bulk of Al Gore's wealth come from? His seat on the board of Apple Computer, that's where, right? Stock options and inside IPO and so forth, right? What about Obama? Well, Obama's net net worth uh, uh, when he went into office was $1.3 million. You know, he had a uh, Senate job there, uh, and he had, uh, I think he was uh, also partly employed uh, with some law firm or something out there in, in Illinois or uh, some nonprofit, whatever, $1.3 million. Okay, now he's worth $70 million, right? Well, he's $1.3 million in 2008, and when he left office in 2016, he was $24 million, right? His tax returns in 2016 show a gross income of $436,000. That was his income when he left office, right? Uh, he got multi-million dollar advances for books, right? And a $65 million deal uh, for two books. $65 million deal from Penguin Publishers for two books. Figure that one out, right? He gets $400,000 for speaking, uh, uh, and he's got this deal with Netflix, right, to put on and Spotify and Audible, in other words, nicely connected, right, deals, uh, where he puts out these uh, documentaries, whatever, and he's got real estate loans and deals. He's got homes in Washington, D.C., and Chicago with Martha's Vineyard. 
everywhere. Well, he's part of the economic elite now. You know, he he got his way in. He got into the the, the club. Yeah. Uh, George W. Bush, well, you know, he had a silver spoon before he even started in 2000. Uh, he was worth $29 million. Uh, you know, now he's worth uh, probably $100 million. You know, when he left office, he was worth $50 million. Uh, speaking engagements, he, you know, he gets about $10 million a year, 250000 a speech, two books, $10 million advance each. Right. He kind of didn't need it. Trump doesn't doesn't really need it either. You know, he's been he's been grifting and stealing <laughs> from banks and uh, the taxpayer for quite some time. Uh, I mean, this is chump change for him, right? Uh, but if you look at it, these presidents and candidates for president, and, I mean, even even high level government uh, bureaucrats like. Uh, um, Ben Bernanke, who used to be the head of the Fed uh, during uh, the crash, 2008-9 crash, you know, and he threw uh, $5 trillion at the banks to bail them out. Well, they thanked him nicely. And when he left office, he too was getting uh, $200,000 for per speech, you know, to banking groups. Well, thank you, Ben. And of course, the same situation with the books. He may have been more involved in the writing of the books, uh, being an economist. Uh, but uh, this is how the elite is is paid nicely in this country. It's corrupt as hell, but it's legal. It's corrupt as hell, but it's legal. You know, corruption is legal in the United States, <laughs> unlike in these banana republics. Right. Okay, let's talk about something else here. Uh, let's talk about uh, global politics a little bit. Uh, um, Vladimir Putin went on a tour here <laughs> this week. He went to the United Emirates, right? Then to uh, Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, met with Ben Salman there. Uh, and now he's in Iran. I, I mean, it's quite a tour. He's getting a, a, a red carpet reception uh, by these Arab countries. So what do you think is behind this? Well, these countries have joined the BRICS. You know, that's the acronym for this group that started out of countries of only five, you know, Russia, China, India, um, South Africa, right, Brazil. Well, now it's over 10, I think it's 11 or 12 and more want to join. It's the global South and East uh, that's uh, sort of merging as a counterpoint against uh, the American empire, which is the G7, US, Europe, Japan. I mean, we, we are living in historic moment. The beginning of the end of the American US global economic empire. It's the beginning of the end. We're, we, we're witnessing it day after day here, uh, accelerated by the war. And the sanctions, you know, accelerated the whole process. This would have happened, but it's happening much more quickly. Wars are a revolution of history, revolutions of history, locomotives of history, right? That's what's happening right before our eyes. We're living it, right? 
Well, look what's happening in the Middle East. The U.S. has absolutely no influence hardly among the Arab countries in the Middle East anymore because of this situation with the Israeli-Hamas war. You know, dummy Biden goes over there and says, well, whatever, Netanyahu, you know, whatever you want, Bibi, you know, we're for you. We'll throw whatever you need. Well, Bibi generates a, a policy of genocide, right? And the U.S. is stuck between a rock and a hard place. They say they're going to support him 100 percent, and they better in election year because the Jewish money isn't going to go their way if they don't. Right? And APAC, the Jewish American lobbying group, pays 40 percent of the operating costs of the Democratic Party and has announced it will spend $100 million on candidates. Well, you know, the Democratic Party has really no option if they're opportunists, which they are, uh, to you know, announce 100% support for Netanyahu and Israel. But yet the genocide puts them in a hard spot because that means uh, the rest of the Arab countries are saying, what the hell are you doing, Joe? You know, you come over here and you say your support is genocide and you don't want any ceasefire, Joe? And then you buy this bullshit about babies being decapitated, you know, you just spouting the propaganda, Joe. What's the matter with you? I mean, it's not even America of the past where, you know, you were a little more careful about it. Uh, and the Arab countries, you know, who are less dependent on the U.S. than they ever were, uh, are, are saying, you know, we don't want to talk with you, Joe. And they invite Vladimir, who comes around and he's getting the, uh, you know, the real red carpet treatment in Saudi Arabia and Emirates. Well, because now those countries have joined the BRICS, joined the BRICS. And it's not just oil anymore, OPEC plus, you know, it's everything. Uh, and not just economics, but politics as well. They're aligning with each other. The U.S. is driving all these countries uh, into a coalition against it. And, of course, they'll do their best about the oil. oil. I'm sure Vladimir went over there, you know, to discuss, you know, how can we cut the oil spice to bring prices back up? Uh, well, that's getting difficult because the global economy is slowing down and China's not growing. So uh, it's hard to... Uh, cut production and reduce supply to drive up prices because declining demand because of the recession is driving down prices of energy. Okay, so, but they're trying to work on that, I'm sure. They're probably also talking about if the U.S. can't stop Netanyahu and his genocide, well, maybe we'll just boycott. All of us get together and boycott Israel, and we won't uh, give them any of, our, any of our oil, which means that they're going to have to get it from the U.S. or some other places, uh, which means there'll be a supply problem and the price will go up. Well, that sort of is, you know, the game of OPEC. Uh, they're also discussing a new financial global structure. Ooh, you know what that means? That means the economic power of the U.S. is going to be further undermined. What do you mean by financial structure? Well, what they mean is uh, uh, let's create an alternative to the dollar and trade uh, using that alternative as well as our, our own currencies. And while we're at it, let's have a new international payment system. Let's not use the U.S. and its bankers' swift international payment system. 
which uh, the U.S. uses to see who's violating its sanctions. You know, let's let's just cut off um, any opportunity of the U.S. to figure out who's who's uh, bypassing their sanctions. Their phony price caps on global oil, for example, and uh, you know, let's just trade in our own currency, use our own international payment system. This is big deal. This is a big deal, folks, right? Uh, and I'm sure that's what they're talking about because uh, Vladimir uh, brings his uh, central banker and his financial team with him. Yeah. And they're talking to uh, the Saudis financial team and the Emirates financial team and probably uh, the Egyptians are over there, too. And uh, after this, uh, Putin's going to Iran, talking about the same because they're in the BRICS, too, now. And probably also about mutual war production, war goods production. You know, uh, uh, the, Russia has a problem of, of, of not a, a large enough labor force, right? And I'm sure Putin's talking with the Iranians about producing mili Russian military uh, hardware using uh, its, Iran's excess labor force. Yeah. Uh, or maybe even uh, uh, getting Iranians to um, uh, labor force, temporary labor force to come to Russia to help expand production. In, in exchange, the Russians <clears throat> are going to give the Iranians uh, its latest jets, its latest advanced uh, aircraft. And the Iranians, of course, are doing pretty good with drones, and they're going to continue giving the Russians drones. So in other words, a further integration of uh, their uh, uh, military production. That's going on, too. That's going on, too. Okay, so that's Putin's tour. Another thing hitting the uh, the news uh, quite a bit now is uh, it's coming out in European and U.S. Uh, uh, newspapers and media about the uh, near deal that Ukraine uh, had reached with uh, Russia uh, two months after the invasion, February 22. You know, by April, there was a deal that was hammered out in Istanbul between the Russians and the Ukrainians in which uh, the Russians agreed they would pull out. The war would be over. The Ukraine war here I'm talking about, that would be over. Uh, and as long as uh, uh, Ukraine agreed uh, not to join NATO, to be neutral, which was the situation of uh, the, the president who got overthrown by the coup in Ukraine in 2014. He wanted to be new. He wanted to trade both with Europe and with Russia, right? And they, no, 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 you know, the Victoria Newland and the others said, no, no, we don't want you doing anything with Russia anymore. We want you to be part of Western Europe. Okay. But anyway, this deal was reached, and the deal was uh, just be neutral, right? Don't join NATO and uh, allow these two heavily populated Russian-speaking provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk in the northeast, far northeast of Ukraine, uh, allow them some modicum of autonomy. Uh, let them uh, speak their Russian language instead of Ukrainian, which are very close. But, you know, the Ukrainian uh, fascists, when they took over, they, they wanted to quash any Russian-speaking, you know. They weren't, they, the, the President then, after the coup, Poroshenko declared, uh, "Oh, these Russian-speaking provinces aren't going to get any money for their education. They're going to have to speak Ukrainian and 
uh, issues like that. They're going to be second-class citizens, et cetera, et cetera. Well, just let them, they could stay, according to this deal, they, they could stay in Ukraine, these two provinces, just give them some autonomy. Well, that was rejected because now it's very clear the Brits sent uh, Boris uh, Johnson in and he said, no, Zelensky, you can't agree to that. And Zelensky threw in uh, with the West. And that was the end of that deal. They could have had that deal. Now they're not going to get that deal. They're going to be lucky, and I doubt it will happen, that they will get a deal where Russia just will agree to the four provinces that's already legally annexed to Russia. They're part of Russia. They'll always be part of Russia because Ukrainians are losing big time. And everybody knows it. And in the media in the West, it's beginning to come out. They're talking about this Istanbul deal in April of 22 and how it was lost. Well, that's a signal that they're giving up. You know, the media is reflecting the elites who see the writing on the wall because they've given Ukraine all the arms that they could. You know, when this war began, Ukraine asked the West for 350 tanks, 6,700 uh, fighting vehicles, right, and 500 pieces of artillery, and they got it. The U.S. and the Europeans agreed to that, and they got it, and they lost, right? They had more men than the Russians. The Russians only had 190,000 in the beginning, and the Ukrainians had 400,000. Well, okay, the Ukrainians uh, mobilized 200,000 more last summer. They had 600,000. They've lost half of that. They've lost 300,000 killed or injured to the point they, they cannot fight anymore. 300,000. Ten, over 10 million people have left the country. Used to be 40 million uh, back in uh, you know 2014. I mean, there's only 20 million now. They've left. Yeah. And uh, right now, they're, they're, they've lost so many uh, so many men in arms, and some of their best trained, uh, that they got to draft people. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Austin, just recently, right, they all flew uh, to Ukraine. They, meaning uh, CIA, Burns, and so forth, uh, they all flew in there because uh, there's a big crisis now politically going on in, in Kiev. And... Uh, Austin met with uh, the head of the Ukrainian army, Zeluzhny, is his name, and he's feuding with Zelensky, <laughs> Zeluzhny, and it's come out, and uh, Zeluzhny told Austin what he needed for victory in Ukraine. And you know what he said? He said, oh, we need $400 billion more. $400 billion more. We need F-16s, F-18s. We need C-17 transport, C-130 uh, aircraft, Attackums long-range missiles, you know, the whole wish list. And he said, oh, while we're at it, we need 17 million artillery shells. There's 17 million artillery shells in the world. And he says we need 17 million. And we need $400 billion more. At a time when Congress is not approving Biden's Requests for $61 billion more. Uh, this is another thing that happened this week, right? The Senate 
had a procedural vote, uh, not debate to de debate over uh, Ukrainian aid. Now, there is not going to give them the money. Uh, what I think this means is that uh, <clears throat> this isn't the end of this. Uh, they're just breaking the, these these uh, war bills out from the general appropriations bill, which they got to vote on by uh, December 15th. So there'll be a separate vote, and they will then uh, really cut down this $106 billion that Biden wants for his three wars, $61 billion of which is supposed to go to Ukraine. Uh, they'll give him a little bit, you know, a fraction of that, and it will be the last amount they give him. The last amount, uh, and the Europeans aren't giving it, giving them any. Uh, Poland's not sending any more equipment, right? Uh, France isn't, UK isn't, haven't sent them any more tanks. Mm. Only Germany, and Germany is about to explode politically. You know, the biggest party, second biggest party now is the AFD, which is, uh, you know, uh, the proto proto Nazi party. Some say, you know, far right wing party. Yeah. So uh, we're going to see less aid to Ukraine. Uh, and what that's going to do is really uh, exacerbate the U Ukrainian economy. Uh, its deficits will surge. You know, we're giving them $1 billion a month just, just to pay the salaries and pensions of the government workers. $1 billion is going to Ukraine, right? Uh, well, that's going to be cut, right? There'll be layoffs now. There'll be more immigration. Uh, that's why the East European countries have closed their borders to Ukraine. The currency will collapse. The IMF will think twice about the 13 billion it's giving them, right? There'll be hoarding and more corruption. Uh, I mean, the economy is, is gonna go south here and the political infighting is going to intensify. Right? Uh, Zelensky and uh, Zeluzhny are, are feuding with each other. This past week, Zelensky tried to fire Zeluzhny, the head of the army. Zeluzhny refused. He says, I'm not going anywhere, and you better be careful. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, they're moving towards a coup. Okay? All right. I'm out of here. We could have said a lot more maybe next week. Walk the streets, screaming.